over the course of about 25 years, we did about $30 million of consulting for advertising, advertising consulting in the Fortune 500 space. The evidence suggests that you can win an addiction if you want to. If an alpha wolf is is threatened for leadership, if another wolf challenges for leadership, that alpha wolf doesn't say, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug. That, that alpha wolf says, get back in line or I'll kill you, right? Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's Coffee with Robert. I've got a very special guest with me today, Dr. Glenn Livingston. I've been watching um, Dr. Livingston, or Glenn, if I may, Glenn. Oh, sure. Um, I've been watching Glenn for many, many years of some of the great stuff he's been doing online. And um, he's a really great guy. Uh, he's got a lot of great stuff to share. Fabulous backstory and an inspiring story as well that I think you can take a lot of value from today. And if you're going through some challenges of your own right now. Um, I think Glenn's story might inspire you to get back up, dust yourself off and go again. Uh, so with all of that said, I'm going to ask Glenn, if you would, Glenn, just to give us a little bit of your backstory, where you've been up until now, how you got to where you are, what's happening now and where you see it going. Okay. Over to you, my friend, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be happy to do that. Thank you. Well, so I, I guess I, I've had a dual career. I didn't have kids and I, I worked at home, so I had a lot of time. And I worked in psychology and I worked in business. So clinically, I had a child and family practice up until about 10 years ago. I was very active in my 30s, not quite as active after that. The um, rest of my career was originally consulting for large companies. It did um, over the course of about 25 years, we did about $30 million of um, uh, consulting for advertising, advertising consulting in the Fortune 500 space. But I also built and sold a digital advertising agency. I had a following of about 30,000 entrepreneurs. And um, eventually, I, I kind of chucked it all after I got divorced and I wrote a book about my personal journey, journey to stop overeating. Mm -hmm. And that became really popular. And that's, that's what I do now. I wrote a book called Every Binge Again. It's got 700,000 copies distributed. And, um, you know, I, I, what most people don't know, I know your audience is interested in mastering themselves, is mm -hmm. that through a lot of my entrepreneurial ups and downs, and I, it's so funny when you tell the story because you always tell about the ups, but you hardly ever tell about the downs. And boy, were there some downs. <laughs> um, uh, uh, through that whole course, I, I really struggled with binge eating. And at, at the height of it, I was probably about 280 pounds. I stopped weighing myself at about 257. Um, my doctors were yelling at me that I was going to die because my triglycerides were higher than they'd seen before. It mm -hmm. was literally over 1,000. And I had a very bad cardiovascular history in my family. And um, I, I, I went the route of looking for a psychological solution. I, I figured there must be a hole in my heart. And if I could fill that hole in my heart, then I wouldn't have to keep filling the hole in my stomach. Mm -hmm. And it, it turned out that, that it was a very soulful approach. It was a very valuable approach, but it didn't solve the problem. As a matter of fact, it made it worse in a lot of ways. And we can, I don't know how much you want to talk about that I'm happy to tell you the whole story. Um, Absolutely, go go for it. Just flow. Yeah. Uh, all right. Okay. Okay. So I, I just 
I, I wasn't sure how much entrepreneurial stuff versus how much um, of the personal struggle you wanted. But this, so, this is all about the people aspect. I mean, because I think what, what makes it different about what we're doing here is the fact that while, while people's success is the key to get people's initial interest, this is very much more about that human side. So honestly, okay. if you feel happy to talk about it, then I'd be delighted to, to listen. Okay. So I was born in a family of psychologists, my, my mom and my dad and my aunt and my uncle and my stepmom and my stepdad and my sister and her husband and my cousins and my grandmother and my great aunts and my great uncles. Mm. There are so many Dr. Livingstons in our family that you don't want to go out to dinner with us. And everybody can say Dr. Livingston, I presume, one time. <laughs> if, if you're feeling lucky, you could try it again. See what happens. Um, <laughs> So when I was about 17, I discovered that because I'm 6'4 and I'm, I'm reasonably muscular, that if I, if I worked out for two, three hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to. I mean, whole pizza, um, boxes and boxes of Pop-Tarts, boxes of muffins, boxes of mm -hmm. donuts, anything you could imagine, I could do six, 7,000 calories a day. And I was thin. I mean, I was even thinner than I am now. Um, I, I was probably 191, 95 pounds at 6'4 back then. And I stayed like that until I was 22 or 23 years old. And mm -hmm. I, I did not think it was a problem. I thought it was great. I basically turned myself into a big exercising, sleeping, and pooping machine. But um, <laughs> I mean, might, that, that's what your whole life was about, right? Yeah. And, and, and dating. I was dating too. And then, then when I got to be married and 22 23 and my i'm sorry about the beeping outside we're doing some construction oh that's okay don't worry it's fine my, my um I, I was married i had to commute two hours each way to graduate school i had patients i had all these responsibilities my metabolism was slowing down and i i just couldn't work out for three hours a day anymore i found that i couldn't get over the food i the food had a life of its own and i was still mm -hmm. eating the way that i was maybe just a little less but eating the way that I was and I got fatter mm -hmm. and the doctors started yelling me about the, about the triglycerides and um and, and worse yet the, the weight was not the worst part of it because like even though I was up to about 280 at one point I, I'm pretty tall and people still said I was attractive and um and you know my my wife wasn't complaining about that it, it the the really hard part and it was uncomfortable I mean, you anybody's mm -hmm. got a belly they know it's really uncomfortable but the worst part was that I I couldn't stop thinking about food and I'd be, I'd be sitting with a suicidal patient and I'd be thinking, when can I go get a pizza? Mm -hmm. Right. And I never lost anybody. And I, I work with hundreds of people, but, but if you know anything about psychology, about being a psychotherapist, it's not really an intellectual endeavor. It's kind of sort of, and you have mm -hmm. to know a lot of things. You have to be able to put together people's lives, but really that's the easy part. In two or three sessions, you can figure out what's wrong and what people need to do. The, the hard part is getting them to love and trust you enough that they're willing to think new thoughts and change their lives and you know, look for new solutions. And in order to do that, you have to lend them your soul. And, and I, I just wasn't present. I, I, just wasn't, I just wasn't 100% there. And that really, really bothered me given the family that I came from because first and foremost, I wanted to be a great, a great psychologist. So I went to all the best psychologists I could find for myself mm -hmm. to talk about my eating problems. And I, 
I went to a psychiatrist and got some medication and I went to Overdue's Anonymous for a couple of years and I went to nutritionists and I lived right outside New York City. My parents knew everybody. So I went to a lot of the, the best people. Um, it would work a little bit, like I would learn things. It certainly had an influence on the person that I am today. It was a, a soulful journey. Mm -hmm. But I would, I would lose weight and then I gain a lot more back. I'd lose weight and then I gain a lot more back. And it all came to a head. I, I'm going to speed up 25 or 30 years. But there were three things that happened that taken together really flipped the paradigm with which I was going after things. I used to think you have to love yourself thin, nurture your inner wounded child, um, you know, fill that hole in your heart. And then as I was starting to do the, as I started to do a lot more corporate consulting and spend a lot more time with the food industry, mm -hmm. I learned something about the neurology of overeating. The part of the brain that responds to food this, that responds to bags and boxes and containers and all these hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and mm -hmm. oil and excitotoxins that are, that are designed to hit your bliss point without giving you enough nutrition to make you feel satisfied. Mm -hmm. That's targeting your reptilian brain. Now, the thing about the reptilian brain, that's the part that's responsible for feast or famine and, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and fight or flight and a lot of those primitive survival responses. The thing about the reptilian brain is that it doesn't know love. But when the reptilian brain looks at something in the environment, it goes, do I eat it, do I mate it, or do I kill it? Eat, mate, or kill. That's what it knows. Mm -hmm. that, wow, that's interesting. So I'm spending all these years trying to soulfully look for a way to love myself thin, but food addiction doesn't seem to have anything to do with love. The mammalian brain sits on top of that, and it inhibits the eat, mate, or kill response until you can determine what impact will that have on your loved ones or your tribe. Mm -hmm. And then the neocortex, the, the most recently evolved, it doesn't matter if it evolved or God put it there, but, but, but the, the most recent part of the brain, that is responsible for long-term goals and putting things off so that you can contribute to society and be the kind of person that you want to be and um, channel your energy into other things like art and music and work and mm -hmm. contribution. So the structure of the brain didn't really correspond with what food addiction was targeting. The billions of dollars that I saw going into creating these food-like substances that would override our better judgment were, was an overwhelming force. I knew what was happening in advertising. I mean, there are five to 7,000 messages a year that are beamed at us over the airwaves and the internet. Mm -hmm. How many of those do you think are to get you to eat more whole fruits and vegetables? Not, not that many. Right? Uh, and then the addiction treatment industry is telling you that you can't, you can't quit even if you want to. The best you can do is abstain one day at a time. And you take all three of those overall, and by the way, there's no evidence for that. The evidence suggests that you can quit an addiction if you want to. So those three overwhelming forces taken together really have nothing to do with a sickness inside of me or a hole in my heart. They're, they're external forces, and they didn't exist while we were on the savannah. We didn't have chocolate bars and potato chips and pizza uh, yeah. when we were evolving in the savannah. They said, well, maybe this is a lot more like just taking charge or taking control the way that an alpha wolf would take control in a wolf pack. If an alpha wolf 
is is threatened for leadership, if another wolf challenges for leadership, that alpha wolf doesn't say, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug. That, that alpha wolf says, get back in line or I'll kill you, right? Mm -hmm. Snarls yeah. and said, so, so maybe this is more like capturing and caging a rabbit animal. Maybe it's not really like, like, like controlling my bodily organs. Like, you know, like, like as a matter of fact, I, I have to pee right now, but I'm not gonna because <laughs> I, I'm in the I'm in the middle of an interview. My my bladder is generating a very powerful urge, but I'm not going to listen to it. The great great thing is about video, we can pause it. <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm okay. I, I'm just using that for illustration. It's, okay. it's, not, that, it's not that bad. Um, or or, you know, if there's an attractive woman on yeah. the street, I don't, I don't run up into her and kiss her. You have to you know approach people in a particular way. And actually, I'm kind of shy in person, so I almost never even do that. Yeah. Um, you you. You have these biological urges and they generate a desire for action that's very strong but because of the people that we've decided to be in society whether we know it or not we've learned to take charge of those biological urges mm -hmm. live comfortably astride them and and be the people that we want to be i said well maybe that's the solution here the last thing that happened that really drove this home was I did a 40,000 person study. I was getting paid all this money to do these big gigantic studies mm -hmm. and, and they're mostly surveys. And so I set up a survey online and I let it run for about five years. And basically I asked people, what are the foods that you can't stop eating once you start them? And what's troubling you in your life? It's different kinds of questions, but that's basically what I asked them. And then I looked for patterns. And there are three patterns that I saw. One was that people who struggled with chocolate like I did, because my binges always started with chocolate. I, mm -hmm. I would eat other things afterwards, but I'd be eating really good. And then I go, ah, what, that's one chocolate bar, what's the big deal? And then I was <laughs> off to the races. People who did that, they tended to be lonely or brokenhearted or maybe a little depressed. People who struggled with salty, crunchy things tended to be stressed at work. And people who struggled with soft, chewy thing like you know, bread and pasta and bagels, they, they tended to be stressed at home. And I thought, that's really interesting. Well, before I start talking to clients about that or figure out how I can apply that, I want to figure it out in myself. Let me talk to, let me ask my mom because she raised me. I said, mom, I'm not in a great marriage. And, you know, I, I complained about that. But, but what is it that could have set me up to rent the chocolate when I felt lonely or brokenhearted? What, why would that be? I mean, you, you raised me. You have trouble with chocolate yourself. What can, and she gets this horrible look on her face. And she goes, I'm so sorry, honey. I go, mom, mom, it's okay. Whatever it is, it's 40 years ago. I forgive you, but I'm just trying to figure this out. And she says, well, when you were one year old in 1965, your dad was in the army. He was a captain in the army. And they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I was terrified. I mean, we were trying to get pregnant with your sister. I thought I was going to have two young kids and have no means to support them. I was just going to be an army widow and I was going to miss him. And I was terrified. I was really terrified. At the same time, my father, your grandfather, was just out of prison. And I had idolized him my whole life. I didn't know he was guilty in doing these things and my whole mm -hmm. life fell apart. And so I was depressed myself, my mom, uh, most of the time. And I'd be sitting and staring at the wall. And I didn't have the wherewithal to hug you and hold you and love you mm -hmm. when you came running to me for food or love or to play or just to interact. So here's what I did. I got a little floor refrigerator mm -hmm. and I got a big bottle of Bosco chocolate syrup. 
I, I don't know if I'm dating myself by using the, the word Moscow. <laughs> so oh, don't worry, we date back to roughly the same period. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you've got the you've got the silver hair and the gray. Yeah, beard. exactly. I, I, just, I just shaved my beard. <laughs> and she said, when you'd come running to me, I'd say, Glenn, go get your Bosco. And then I'd proceed to sit and stare at the wall. You'd go running over to the refrigerator. Mm-hmm. You'd take out the Bosco. You'd open the cap, and you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. You'd just suck on the bottle. And Robert, if, if this were a movie, then at that point, my mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry, and we'd forgive each other, and I'd never have trouble with chocolate again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had a hug with my mom, and we forgave each other, and I, I did become softer on myself. I, I did become kinder to myself, and I, it was a really good conversation to have. I learned a lot about my mom, mm-hmm. but I, um, the problem got worse. The problem did not get better. And the reason the problem got worse, and this is really what flipped it for me, was because there was this crazy voice in my head. And it went something like this. You know what, Glenn, you're right. Our mama didn't love us enough. And she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in our heart. And until we can find the love of our life and get out of this marriage, we're going to have to keep binging on chocolate. Yippee, let's keep going. Mm -hmm. And it was this voice of justification. I thought, that's really interesting. So I theoretically solved the emotional problem. I know where it came from. Um, insight doesn't always solve a problem, but it, like, it, it did make things better sure. emotionally. But the food problem got worse because that voice of justification was seizing on it as the opportunity to, um, to, to fuel even more chocolate binges. And then I realized that if you think of the emotion as the fire, you can have a raging fire inside a well-contained fireplace and that becomes the center of hearth and home. That's actually a good thing, right? But if there are holes in the fireplace, then the fire can jump out and do damage. Well, that's what the voice of justification does. It pokes holes in the fireplace. Mm -hmm. And as it turned out, and I'll tell you how I did it, it's a lot easier to stop that voice of justification from poking holes in the fireplace and to build a better fireplace than to put out the fire. Putting out the emotional fire, finding love, um, not feeling so lonely or brokenhearted, that, that can be a five or 10 year endeavor in psychotherapy. And there's some things that just involve luck. I mean, finding the right person and you know that some of it is just luck. It's, there's, there's a lot of people out there and it's really hard to make a match. Mm. So I said, you know what? I could stop overeating even if I am lonely or brokenhearted, I could stop overeating if I, even if I am depressed. This is BS. I don't, I don't need to eat myself to death just because I have some emotional problems. And so this is an embarrassing part. And I was, I was never going to do this publicly. Mm-hmm. This, was, this was going to be a journal that I kept for myself, just my own private way of stopping overeating. But it was probably, I don't know, it's probably about 45, 46 years old. Mm-hmm. And... I decided I was gonna try this. I was gonna draw a really bright line so that I knew what healthy eating was and healthy eating wasn't. I think the first one I drew was something like, uh, I'll never have chocolate on a weekday again. That way, if I heard a little voice in my head that suggests that I should have chocolate for any reason whatsoever, like, I don't know, you worked out hard enough, it's not gonna make a difference, or you could start tomorrow, or chocolate comes from a coca bean and that grows on a plant, so therefore it's a vegetable. Whatever, voice I heard, I would say, that's not me, that's my inner pig. My inner pig was my reptilian brand. And 
my pig is squealing for its slop, chocolate with slop, the squeal were the crazy things that it was saying, that I don't eat pig slop, I don't know the farm animals tell me what to do. As crazy as that sounded, as crude and primitive as that is for a sophisticated psychologist like me, mm -hmm. that's after all these years, after 30 years of trying all these different ways, that's what gave me those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to wake up and, and remember who I was and the kind of person I wanted to be around chocolate. And I'm not gonna tell you that it was a miracle and all of a sudden I never had it again. What I will tell you is that it miraculously transformed my sense of powerlessness. I was feeling powerless and hopeless. So almost, and if you ask anybody who really struggles with binge eating, sometimes it feels like someone has a gun to your head and says, you have to do this. And all of your best laid plans, everything that's important to you, it goes out the window. And it's, it's this survival response. You just feel like you have to do it. That went away. I stopped feeling like I had to. Sometimes I chose to anyway. But over time, I experimented with different rules and I realized that it didn't matter. No one was telling me what to eat. I could eat whatever I wanted to. I mean, if I wanted to make a rule that said, I'm going to have 10 donuts a day and that's it, I could do that. I, I didn't do that, but if I wanted to, I could. So if I could eat whatever I wanted to, I just had to make these rules and you know plan for it a day or two in advance. Then it was kind of silly for me to keep breaking the rules. Yeah. And before I, before I knew it, I was eating well. Before I knew it, I... I you know, the pig was squealing a lot. It was making a lot of noise. I kept a journal for a lot of years, me versus my pig. Um, and then as I was getting divorced, I was a minor part of a publishing company. And the CEO said, we need to publish our own book to prove that we know what we're doing and do some marketing experiments because um, then we can attract better authors. Could you write a book? And I said, well, I have this journal. So I took a month and I wrote, I wrote it into a kind of an allegory, not, not an academic treat, it's more of a story, me versus my pig. And I gave it to him. He calls me back two years later and he says, donuts or pig slop? I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. <laughs> and, and he lost 86 pounds over the course of, a, I think, wow. a year after that. So we published it. And, you know, we, we've both been in marketing most of our lives and we know what we're doing, but we didn't expect how viral it was going to go. Yeah. And we have almost 700,000 readers now. We've got over 2,000 reviews. I've since written three, three additional books. And um, that's what I do now. I go around telling people that I've got a pig inside me and so do you. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and what's really funny, Robert, once in a while I'll be in a bookstore. Yeah. And people don't know my name. They don't, they don't say, hey, are you Glenn Livingston? They come up to me and they go, Pig guy, big guy. So, that's, that's my claim to fame now. I'm, I'm the big guy. <laughs> Do you know what? It's, you, it's not crazy what you're saying. It's, it's something I've been banging on about forever. It's this fact, you know, when you were, you were kind of effectively, over a period of time, going through that, that level of conscious effort, which, which, I mean, obviously, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but it's, it's that, that period and for most people, it takes at least 30 to 90 days, in my experience, where they're consciously having to, when they have a thought, either say another affirmation over the top of it or think a different thought to impress it upon the subconscious. Because you, as you know, the subconscious can only listen to one thought at a time and take that in and act on it. So it appears to me that's exactly what you actually did. And then yeah. gradually over a period of time, it became less about who you were trying to be and actually became who you were on the inside. You were yeah. upsetting. And I'm a big believer in this, that you can reprogram yourself on the inside. 
but it's it's that most people that I come across unfortunately don't have the discipline they'll have a lifetime of challenges or hang-ups about things and they won't put in the 30 or 90 days disciplined action conscious action to make a long-lasting change yeah yeah. And, and, and it's not really, doesn't have to be over difficult. It's, it's more about application and persistence, I find. It, it's more about application and persistence and creating a kind of cocoon for your new habit to protect it while it develops. Yeah. And there are physiological changes. When you're talking about sugar, flour, alcohol, caffeine, and a lot of the stimulants that we're addicted to, there are physiological changes that go on in the body, um, a lot of them in the first 100 hours or so. Like pe people can feel radically different 100 hours after they start the new habit, but definitely within six to eight weeks. So, so for example, let's just stay with the, the example of chocolate. I, I, there's no reason that any particular person has to give up chocolate. Chocolate could be healthy to some people. My sister is one of those people who can have two little squares that she says, I'm gonna fold up the rest for later. And, mm. and I, I don't understand. I don't understand how people do that. I eventually evolved to be someone who just doesn't have chocolate. I just can't do mm. it. But, but um, some, pe some people can. But let's say that you decide you're going to give up chocolate. Well, your pig is gonna tell you, you can't do that, you're gonna be deprived forever. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that is your one pleasure in life and you're going to be deprived of the chocolate pressure. It doesn't tell you all the other things you're depriving yourself of, of by continuing to have it, like good health and confidence and clarity of mind and, you know, clear skin and, and all that kind of stuff. But it's not even telling you the truth about the deprivation you'll experience physically forever because there's a phenomenon, it's called downregulation. If you're exposed to a supersized stimulus repeatedly, and again, chocolate did not exist on the savannah, mm -hmm. then your pleasure systems downregulate. They don't, you don't get as much pleasure from chocolate as you do the first time you have it. If you have it every day for a month, the last day it's not gonna taste as good as the first day. Cool. It's, it's kind of the same like when I was in graduate school, I lived underneath the subway. And the first week I was there, I thought, I'm never gonna get any sleep. I'm gonna fail school. There's no way I can do this. But three weeks later, I didn't hear the train. I slept like a baby through it. The, the, the brain downregulates a response to a stimuli once it realizes there's no reason it has to pay so much attention to it. Mm -hmm. Your taste buds become less sensitive. The reverse is true. If you stop sleeping under the subway, you sleep out in the country, when you, you know, a month after you're out in the country, you can hear the sounds of the crickets, you can probably distinguish the different types of birds and animals. When you stop having sugar every day like that, your taste buds regenerate, your nervous system regenerates. A month or two later, uh, the research says your taste buds almost double in sensitivity, but you also start to experience pleasure from what nature has to offer. And you can taste the difference between different species of apples, and that's you know pleasurable and interesting to you. And, mm -hmm. and so you, you don't have to believe me. Every, every bone on your body can say, yeah, right, I hate fruit and vegetables, and I'm never gonna do this. You just have to try it, and I promise you, you're not going to suffer in the way that your pig says that you're going to suffer. You just have to create this cocoon and get through that, that month or two of persistent effort and you'll be, you'll be better off. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. I get that. It's, it's weird, actually. I'm going to go back to your mom as well because um, it's because I'd like to get your take on this if it's okay. Because when you were talking about the fact that she would break out the chocolate and she was in a place where she could probably was finding it very difficult to cope herself. Um, would you not agree as well that the, possibly some of the reason for that is because 
maybe subconsciously without even realizing it, what she was aware of was the fact that she had nothing to give to you until she could make herself happy enough and in a good enough place where she had enough left to give to you and to look after you. And, and, I, and I, I see that a lot. And I, I'm, I think we're all like that. If you, if your cup isn't full, as it were, and overflow, and you have nothing to give anybody else. And, yeah. and that's the issue. And I think that's a lot of reason why people maybe sometimes they'll turn to alcohol or they'll turn to food or, or whatever it is to try and kind of get that leg up if, if you want. Um, well, so, so it's very true that you can't pour from an empty cup. Mm. And I'm very much in favor of people taking care of themselves and mm. making themselves happy in that way. And, and um, I, I don't think that that's selfish. I think it's actually selfish not to do that because the people mm. around you, you suffer. That said, I think that there's a cultural confusion about emotional eating. P people believe that they eat for comfort. And that's not really what's happening. It's part of what's happening. Mm -hmm. So if you overload your body with digestive tasks, then the nervous system doesn't have enough energy to conduct the emotions. As a consequence, there is a numbing effect of excess food on the emotions. People, people associate it with anesthetics. And if they're very unhappy or um, very stressed out, then they, they don't feel those things as strongly if they turn to comfort food, which is usually sugar, flour, stimulants, salt, alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, that said, there's something else going on, and it's really important that people change their thought about this. Because if you say, well, I'm just eating for comfort, then your pig is going to take advantage of it. It's going to go, I'm so unhappy. You, you can't leave me like this. You got you to gotta give me some chocolate or some pizza or something. Um, and you feel like you're really cruel if you're not feeding the pig. Mm -hmm. What's also happening is that the things that you turn to, they're kind of like drugs. I mean, they're not classified as drugs. They're, they're perfectly legal. But like I said, we didn't have potato chips on the Savannah. It's, it's just, it's a complicated form of pleasure that evolution didn't prepare us for. Mm. We didn't have chocolate bars in the Savannah. We didn't have pizza on the Savannah. And when we're looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or container, we're not just looking for love. We're really looking to get high with food. It's, it's, it's very akin to a drug addiction. And it's important that people flip that paradigm and say, oh, my pig wants to get high with food right now. Because if you don't acknowledge that aspect of the problem, then it's too egocentric. It feels too good to say, well, I'm just comforting myself. And you're actually reinforcing the addiction. But if you say, I'm looking to get high with food, you're thinking, well, I don't want to be a drug addict. And it makes you think twice. Mm. So. So yeah, it's all going on. The conversations, I mean, you can learn an awful lot about yourself by looking at the particular foods that you crave. Mm. Um, you know, I, I learned a lot about myself by that chocolate conversation and I, it led to other conversations about what chocolate meant to me. And um, I could wax eloquent about how that shaped me as a person and the things that I look for in a woman to replace that. There's an awful lot I learned about my soul by doing that. It's a good conversation to have, but it's not going to fix your addiction. It's not going to, it's not going to make you eat better. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess all of this stuff is going to be in the book as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's all in the book. Yeah. Oh, sure. Is it, sure. I mean, where, cause I mean, we, we had a kind of um, a precursor call to this uh, yeah. little chit, chit chat about the way we set all this up and, and um, you know, what we were going to talk about, etc. And, um, 
and we touched on this 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 whole thing and the fact that it really is you know a huge problem these days you know overeating and, and binging and all that sort of stuff and it really is something that's kind of dear to my heart because i've had a few people in my family that have had a real problem with it and continue some of them to have a problem with it um and i think it touches almost like well i mean dare i say i mean it's the same as cancer every family it's not treated as seriously unfortunately but it is as serious and every family has it they'll have you know i mean i see young kids now walking along that that are just incredibly like morbidly obese and they're in their early teens yeah and i, I think it's just so sad that i love what you're doing and uh, and all power to you mate I, I really all power to you i just want everybody to to know about this book and and, and your work because i think it needs to get into people's hands definitely well thank you Thank you very much. No, you're welcome, really. Do, do, do you want me to tell you where they can get it for free? Or do you want to talk about some other things first? How did you guess? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be terrific if you could. Yeah. So I, I make it available on Kindle Nook or PDF for, for free. And there are several reasons for that. Uh, part of it is my personal mission. I'm trying to help as many people as possible. And the other part of it is that a small percentage of people that get it wind up buying or other books or coaching services or things like that. Um, so at neverbingeagain.com, if you click the big red button, you can get the book for free. There's also a set of food plan starter templates. Um, it doesn't matter what dietary philosophy you have. We have a set of rules that might work for, um, you know, keto versus paleo versus high carb versus low carb versus mm -hmm. point counting. Whatever you do, there's a set of rules that you can start with. I, I call them starter templates because I'm not a not a medical doctor or a nutritionist, so I need you to take responsibility for adjusting them to your own needs or consulting with a nutritionist or whatever you have to do. I also recorded a set of coaching sessions because I, this is all free too, because I, I know that this is a really harsh, weird thing in theory. You're saying, wait a minute, Robert's got this psychologist on and he's got a pig inside of him and he doesn't eat pigs often. <laughs> this is crazy, but it's really not. It's a very compassionate, life-giving process. And I wanted you to hear how people transform from, um, from, from feeling hopeless and powerless to feeling enthusiastic and hopeful in just one, one session. So it's at neverbingeagain.com and click the big red button. I, I, wanted to, I wanted to say one more thing. Do I, do I have five more minutes? Do we have to? Oh, no, of course. Yeah, carry on. I wanted to say for entrepreneurs, every, entrepreneur, every successful entrepreneur that I know has had a near bankruptcy or a bankruptcy, mm -hmm. or, or several. Um, mine was in 2001 to 2003, when I invested everything that I had. I, I, I developed, I guess you'd call it hubris, or just grandiosity, because everything I'd done was successful to that point. And I figured there was no way I could fail. And so I invested everything we had in a focus group facility on Long Island. And it was right before 9-11, and as soon as 9-11 hit, it was really clear that even with our 10-year lease, this thing was going to go belly up. It, it just, mm -hmm. There was no way that people were going to fly all across the country in the wake of 9-11 to New York to do focus groups. But my wife at the time didn't agree, and we went very deep in debt, $700,000 in debt, as a matter of fact. And all of my hard work kind of went into keeping that thing open, and I knew it was dying. And I turned to food to cope with that. I, I got myself high with food all the time, chocolate mm -hmm. and pizza mostly. That's when I was my fattest. That's when I was my sickest. 
And I tell people, this is the important point. I was fat, sick, and broke. I got fat, sick, and broke. I could have just been broke. And that, that's a really powerful insight for me because if you're an entrepreneur, it's likely there's going to be a time when you're broke. It, it's just, it's just how I wish it wasn't. I feel like I've learned enough about being an entrepreneur that's, that's never going to happen again. But, you know, along the path, most people, they, they get broke or close to broke and they have to, you know, stick with it. They, yeah. They're broke, they're not poor. And, and if I didn't try to eat myself to death during that time, I probably would have gotten out of it quicker because I, I would have had my wits about me. If you have six problems and then you overeat, then you have seven problems. So don't be fat, sick, and broke. Just be broke if you have to. Mm -hmm. And, and um, I just want to make sure I left entrepreneurs with that message because it was a hard one lesson for me. I love it. And th thank you for being so transparent with that because I, I, as I said to you before, it's, for some people, it's very, very difficult to be so open uh, about, about the past and, and kind of like open ourselves up warts and all, if you like. And, and yeah. we've all got plenty of warts, whether or not we've got the courage to, to come out and, and speak about them in front of people.